Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 1st of November 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Uh, and well, north of the border, of course, we start off with uh, the COP26. Um, it's all kick started yesterday on Halloween, of course. Uh, and uh, well, it started off with the leaders meeting and the UK Prime Minister, there he is, this great man will host leaders from around the world to make clear their commitment. Well, to what, I wonder? Uh, well, of course, this came uh, immediately following the G20 uh, and the G20 was taking place in Rome. There they all are. They're all very excited. Uh, and uh, well, there's Boris standing beside Emmanuel Macron. I'm not sure why that happened, because I thought they were ready to rip each other's throats out, according to various mainstream press. Um, but what did they decide at the G20? Well, they decided all kinds of things, uh, setting up a G20 Global Finance Health Task Force, which is going to enhance coordination against health threats and promote joint actions, including deciding how to invest funds. Uh, we reiterate, reiterate our commitment to bring the pandemic under control everywhere as soon as possible, is what they said. So we should all feel much better for that. Uh, they also ratified a global minimum corporation tax. This, of course, was decided at the G7, but the G20 has now ratified that. And I'll just remind everybody once again that if you wanted to get a heads up on that uh, several years ago, uh, then, of course, it was the UK column that you need to go to because uh, this was published in 2013, uh, just following uh, the Bilderberg meeting at the time. Uh, and uh, it was pretty clear uh, that that was uh, one of the major policy areas that they were discussing at that meeting then. And it was only ever going to appear uh, in the not too distant future. And indeed it has. And a Patrick Henningsen article. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, well, sort of a joint article, but nonetheless. Uh, let's uh, then move on to Alex Sharma, because of course he opened the, uh, the COP26. Uh, and I thought we should listen to a few of his comments. Sorry. Six years ago in Paris, we agreed our shared goals. We said we would protect people and nature from the effects of climate change. We said we would get finance flowing to climate action. And we said we would limit the rise in global temperature to well below two degrees, pursuing efforts towards 1.5. The rapidly changing climate is sounding an alarm to the world to step up on adaptation, to address loss and damage, and to act now to keep 1.5 alive. And we know that this COP, COP26, is our last best hope to keep 1.5 in reach. Now, I know that we have an unprecedented negotiations agenda ahead of us, but I believe that this international system can deliver. It must deliver. Well, I'm not sure well, what, what it intends to deliver this this international system, but uh, uh, what, what was he saying? He, all the all the key points there. He was going to protect us all. We're all going to be protected. It's all about finance. It's all about alliteration. Keep 1.5 alive, or at least rhyming, anyway. Uh, and uh, and it's our last best hope. We're going to come on to our last best hope in much more detail in a second. Such a nice, well-spoken gentleman. Yes, isn't he? But let's uh, let's let's just briefly move on uh, with with some of this. Um, so every day before arriving in the blue zone, uh, you must self-administer a COVID-19 rapid lateral flow test, register the result of the test online, and show proof of the result to gain entry. 
Um, so this is the new protocol for uh, COVID if you're at the COP26. Uh, you don't have to demonstrate vaccination status, apparently, just uh, make sure you've done a lateral flow test. But anyway, we all know that uh, this is all about the race to zero. So we're switching things off, except when we're promoting COP26, and then we're switching things on. So lots of buildings all around the world uh, flooded in green light uh, overnight. That doesn't use any energy then? No, no energy there at all. Uh, and of course, we've got to capture the next generation. So Boris was making sure he was virtually signaling with lots of children uh, with uh, some, uh, you know, planting some what? I well, I, I'm just thinking I wouldn't let Boris something. that close to my children. Well, that, that may be the case. Uh, and of course, we've got to make some new rock stars, although this one has been uh, around for a little while. But, uh, but Greta uh, very much being promoted in the mainstream press as a rock star. Uh, and uh, but then we've got uh, Prince Charles uh, because of course he's leading. He led the COP. Uh, he led the G20. Sorry, he also is uh, giving the leading presentation at the uh, COP26. Uh, and just to keep the uh, the COVID narrative going, uh, we have to say that it's a warlike footing that's needed uh, with uh, with COP26. A warlike footing. Um, so that's one of the key things. But David, let's move on to the the last chance saloon here. Uh, because we're, we're starting off with uh, the times uh, and Boris Johnson tells COP26 it's the last chance on climate. Yes, it's the last chance. This is the, the very last chance um, Boris is, is, is telling us here. It's one minute to midnight. Remember, we used to have the doomsday clock when we were all going to be blown up with a nuclear holocaust and, and people would move this completely meaningless figure as to how close we were to detonation. Uh, well, he's borrowed that that little um, bit of imagery as well. Uh, it's one minute to midnight, and uh, it seemed quite strange that I seem to remember some of these words coming up before over the years. More of that in a minute. Right, but uh, we'll keep keep going because uh, we've got uh, Prince Charles next. Well, Prince Charles is also talking about how urgent it all is now. Uh, this was uh, at the G20, but looking forward to COP26. And uh, it was quite a speech in a kind of, I can't believe that, that it's not better sort of way. Um, let's have a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, COP26 begins in Glasgow tomorrow. Quite literally, it is the last chance saloon. We must now translate fine words into still finer actions. And as the enormity of the climate challenge dominates people's conversations uh, from newsrooms to living rooms. But as the future of humanity and nature herself are at stake, it is surely time to set aside our differences and grasp this unique opportunity to launch a substantial green recovery by putting the global economy on a confident, sustainable trajectory and thus save our planet. David, uh, what is the definition of last chance saloon? <laughs> I was looking it up. Now, there's more than one. And before we got on to the definition, I would point out, if it was literally the last chance saloon, it wouldn't be in Glasgow. It would be in Caldwell City, Kansas, uh, because that's what it was, because it was the last saloon where you could get a drink of alcohol before you went into Indian country and don't you like how it's just a little bit racist this idea because you couldn't have or buy or sell or possess alcohol in Indian country because of the, the problems with what the Indians would do with the fire water. That's what it came from. Has two meanings. 
Uh, the one he presumably means is a situation considered to be the last opportunity for success. But the main meaning is, uh, according here to Collins Dictionary, a place frequented by unsavoury or contemptible people. So uh, he's got a point there. Uh, I also thought that the reference to nature herself were a, a sort of a... a, a, a sounds of paganism or, or pantheism in there uh, was, was quite interesting. And uh, he, he then basically stated that, well, vigorous economic growth will, will solve everything. Of course, he doesn't mean that. That's purely for consumption by the gullible. Indeed. But this uh, last chance narrative then, Alex Sharma, Boris Johnson, Prince Charles, but every single media platform seems to be pushing this notion as well. So I had a little look because it did seem familiar. And uh, the, as far back as I could go, I found one in 2001 from Time magazine, a global warming treaty's last chance. 2001 was the last chance. Um, and then the New Zealand Herald in 2007, uh, climate talks are the last chance to avoid catastrophe. World leaders will converge on Bali. So Bali was the last chance. You have to say it's got better weather than Glasgow, but it's still the last chance. It's the the um, Friends of the Earth, uh, Tony Jupiter, said that Bali could be the last chance to avoid the worst effects of global warming. So that was the last chance. Um, 2008 was also the last chance. Humanity is approaching the last chance to prevent catastrophic climate change, according to the uh, World, Wild World Wildlife Fund. Uh, Poznan and Poland, that was 2008. The world will suicide if it doesn't take strong, uh, make a strong climate pact soon, said The Age in 2008. Um, and 2009 was also the last chance. Uh, Ban Ki-moon uh, warns of uh, catastrophe. Uh, without a world deal on climate change. Um, and that was, uh, yeah, that was 2009. Uh, also 2009, The Guardian was reinforcing this. We only have four years left in 2009. We only have four years left uh, to act on climate change. And America has to lead. But it's okay because Obama will save us uh, from species extinction and climate catastrophe in four years. So there we go. Uh, so that was Copenhagen 2009. The world faces an opportunity to agree on adequate global response. It's 12 years since, Co since Kyoto, and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the last chance, says Reuters. Now, that, that was Copenhagen. It was particularly funny because if you remember, all the leaders had to kind of cut short the conference and rush home to deal with snowstorms and record low temperatures. That was very funny. Um, Jim Kerry, uh, Jim Kerry, Kerry the politician, not Jim Kerry, John uh, Kerry, uh, John Kerry um, writing in the New Republic in 2010, thought that some legislation they were passing was the last chance. And uh, in 2013, um, at, at the uh, Durban platform uh, negotiation, maybe the maybe the less uh, the last best chance for um, a convention on climate change to create a regime that can alter the course of climate change, said Mr. Stern, and he, he is quite stern. Let us be guided at every step and every decision by our shared commitment to conquer this challenge. So that was the last chance in 2013. However, the nation, uh, 2015, Paris Climate Conference, the last chance for planet Earth. The stakes are higher than they've ever been before, but the movement may be on the verge of a breakthrough in public consciousness.
So it's the last chance, but there we go. And the BBC also agreed. The BBC, who you think might have remembered they'd used this headline before, but apparently not. Um, they said that Paris was the last chance for action. Scientists are calling on world leaders to sign up to an eight-point plan of action at landmark talks in, in Paris. The UN meeting in December is the last chance to avert dangerous climate change, according to the Earth League. So if that's not good enough, or you're not convinced so far that that was the last chance, Robert Redford, we have to bring in the Film Actors Guild here, Robert Redford in 2015 um, sees the last chance to fix climate. Uh, and that's... Um, he told the United Nations that negotiations of the global deal to tackle climate change could be the world's last chance to save the planet. So the Film Actors Guild are right on board. And despite all of this, here we have today, 20 minutes ago when I screened this, COP26, the world at one minute to midnight over climate change, says Boris Johnson. The world at one minute to midnight, having run down the clock on waiting to combat climate change. He was speaking as leaders arrived in Glasgow. For COP26. So again, for 21 years in the trot now, this is the last chance to avert climate change. So uh, I don't know about you, Mike, but I'm not convinced that they're not lying to us. Now, I'm not convinced about that, David. Uh, I'm also not convinced that uh, mainstream media is going to do an honest job about this either. Um, so here is Jon Snow tweeting this out uh, yesterday. Uh, en route to COP26, Jon Snow, of course, from Channel 4 News. Uh, en route to COP26, trees and branches affected by climate change have slowed our rail journey. Though the branches have been cleared, we're down to five miles per hour. What an irony, what a message. We must change. Dare we hope that we shall. And, and so my first reaction when I saw this, and actually uh, I believe some people have responded in similar tone, uh, was that, of course, uh, this this would be the climate change of autumn and winter that he's talking about. It must be because because we've never had, uh, you know, David, have we had any kind of mainstream headline in the past saying that leaves on the line cause disruption to, to railways in, in the UK? That has never happened before, has it? Oh, you look such a fool. Um, yeah, he, he apparently can't tell the difference between seasons and indeed weather and climate change. So if it's raining, it's climate change. If it's sunny, it's climate change. If it's windy, it's climate change. If it's cold, it's climate change. If it's warm, it's climate change. Because the climate keeps changing. It's just tremendously difficult. It's very inconvenient. Um, so let's come back to uh, Prince of Wales then. And, and uh, well, Jeff Bezos was very excited to, to meet him uh, on the sidelines of the COP26. Prince of Wales has been involved in fighting uh, climate change and protecting our beautiful world for longer than most. Uh, we had a chance to discuss these important issues on the eve of COP26 looking for solutions to heal our world and how the Bezos Earth Fund can help. Uh, so there they are. And uh, well, here's the Bezos Earth Fund. Uh, this is the decisive decade, according to the Bezos Earth Fund. So this is Amazon, Mike. That's correct. Uh, Jeff Bezos from Amazon. Right, uh, yeah. And he and Prince Charles working very hard together. But of course, uh, well, the Daily Mail did, unfortunately, highlight the f where Jeff Bezos was just prior to the COP26. Uh, on his uh, super yacht with Bill Gates uh, in Turkey. Uh, he arrived by helicopter. And uh, really, David, the point here is uh, that, of course, these guys, they don't have to change their behavior. Everybody else has to change their behavior, but they don't have to change their behavior. They don't have to restrict their activities in any way, shape, or form, burn any less fossil fuel, or do any 
less than, than, than they normally would uh, because that would be inconvenient for them. Um, it's really down to the rest of us to do that. And of course, once uh, we've uh, followed their policies through and uh, we've seen healthcare collapse around the world, populations collapse as, as a result, um, of course, there'll be much fewer people uh, on the planet and then they can pursue their normal life, lifestyle without, uh, without affecting uh, climate change or anything like that. I'm, I'm using their narrative to describe this, of course. You might think that. I saw uh, during the week that Joanna Lumley was calling for wartime rationing to be introduced to protect the, the environment. And I strongly suspect that she's not going to be the first one on to powdered egg. Uh, no, probably not. Yeah, the, the, the yachts, the mega yachts, surely should be green. I think that's the key issue with it. It's the wrong colour. It's the wrong colour. Right. Okay, but in the meantime, of course, we're going to stop anybody using coal, for example, or other uh, fossil fuels for so-called for, uh, for energy production and so on. Uh, but just uh, give another narrative here. Well, this is, sorry, this is, uh, this is Bloomberg. Uh, South African energy minister opposes coal ban for climate aid. Uh, and uh, well, this is very much a problem for Africa. Uh, agreement reached the OECD to end export credit support for, uh, for unabated coal-fired power plants. We can't allow the Africans to have coal because that might allow them to develop. And if they develop their economies, they might have need for some of the, the raw materials that are sitting under the earth uh, in, uh, in those countries. And then we couldn't uh, extract them, take them out for a song and use them to build lithium ion batteries and so on and, and, and windmills and whatnot. Uh, China steps up coal imports from Kazakhstan, South Africa and Mozambique amid supply crunch because China is very much not on board with this let's not use coal any anymore narrative, uh, Russia neither. Uh, but uh, uh, this article in Nature is worth having a look at because uh, the, the point here is that the headline is blanket bans on fossil fuel funds uh, will entrench poverty. And this, I think, David, is the key point uh, because the only people that are not, you know, who are, or the people that are going to be affected the worst by this are the poorest countries in the world. Uh, this is not going to have, this is not going to be a beneficial outcome if, if coal in particular is banned. Absolutely not. Um, you're talking about uh, something that will provide essential power, essential heating, essential lighting, and which um, transformed our society, um, transformed the West. Um, and the, the justification for banning it for, uh, across the world is, of course, scientifically not there. Um, it's entirely spurious, and it will hold back countries or will attempt to hold back countries um, and, and keep their, their people in poverty and, and keep their populations low and uh, keep people in essentially in, in, in suffering, avoidable suffering. Now, obviously, this doesn't apply to China because if you've got a, more, a, more, a military that's technologically advanced enough and large enough, the rules don't apply. But it will apply to countries in Africa who, uh, who don't have those benefits. Um, and of course, uh, if you keep uh, countries in Africa, one of the other benefits to that is you keep countries in Africa poor, uh, you keep their healthcare systems on, the, on its knees, uh, and then you can sell them or give them taxpayer funded by the first world, lots of vaccines. That, how can it go wrong? Um, you, you, can, you can prevent them having an independent course of action in all sorts of ways. So they end up ruled by certain globalist forces. 
um, both governmental and non-governmental, uh, because they don't have any uh, independent course of action, because they don't have the essentials for life without complying with the diktats from the UN, from Bill Gates, from Gavi, or from whatever other source happens to uh, have the levers of power at its disposal. Yes, indeed. Right, well, let's uh, move on to this then, because JCB has been making the news recently because they have developed a hydrogen-powered uh, internal combustion engine. So this is contrary to the hydrogen fuel cell technology that we've seen from Toyota and Nissan and so on in the past. Um, now we've got that what they've basically done is they've taken the uh, lower part of the engine block from their normal diesel engines that they use in their excavators, uh, and they've de redeveloped the head uh, part of the, of the engine so that it burns hydrogen as if it was uh, diesel. And they're getting similar uh, rates of torque and similar uh, running durations as they are with diesel engines. So I think this is a really great uh, initiative. Um, but the problem here is that it doesn't really fit with the overall climate change narrative. So while this is being presented as, as brilliant, as green, as fantastic, the problem is that CO2 is only one greenhouse gas, according to the official narrative, and it's even only second on the list. And the primary greenhouse gas on the list, uh, according to the official narrative, is water vapor. And of course, the output that you get from hydrogen engines uh, is water vapor. Um, and so the question is, where is the hydrogen going to come from? Now, in the meantime, hydrogen is going to come from uh, fossil fuels. And so you're introducing effectively new water vapor into the system. The, the, later on, they say that they're going to replace uh, fossil fuel generation for hydrogen with, uh, you know, uh, getting hydrogen from, from renewables. Uh, and, uh, and then, of course, maybe that problem goes away. But in the meantime, it doesn't seem to fit the, uh, the narrative quite so well. Uh, so this is the company that uh, JCB is now getting uh, its, or has agreed to get all its hydrogen from in what's being described as a deal worth billions of pounds. Um, so this is Fortescue uh, Future Industries, which is an Australian company uh, that are uh, promoting green hydrogen. And of course, in order to make sure that we know that it's green hydrogen, we've got to change the chemical sim symbol. Um, so it's not uh, H2 or H or H H2 anymore. It's it's GH2 from now on because it's green hydrogen. Um, so you'll know that it's come from the right kind of source. It hasn't come from uh, fossil fuels. So that's all good, isn't it? Uh, but let's uh, remind ourselves about uh, this man, Mark Carney, uh, our old friend, former governor of the Bank of England. Of course, if you remember, uh, he has made this comment that uh, to get to net zero, it's not getting there in a niche. It requires a whole economy transition. And that's what we're experiencing at the moment, a, a, a whole economy transition. Many people don't quite uh, appreciate the scale of what it is that they're trying to do here at the central banks and driven by Mike, Mark Carney mainly. Uh, companies that don't adapt, including companies in the financial system, will go bankrupt without question. So that's one of the reasons why uh, the... Uh, the whole issue of financing coal in other countries has been knocked on the head. But what has uh, Carney been up to? Well, uh, his latest gambit, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, because they've interviewed him about this, uh, is that he wants to set up a banker's alliance. Uh, this is what he's calling it. Uh, setting targets for less lending and investment in enterprises that produce carbon emissions, devoting more support to new environmentally sustainable technologies, and publishing their progress uh, on these targets each year. Uh, it goes on to say that uh, uh, he has 35 of the world's 50 biggest banks on board, 
Uh, but what he doesn't have on board is any Asian banks. So there are no banks from China, India, Japan, South Korea. So it's all the bankrupt Western banks that are on board. So they're very keen to get, get involved. Um, and uh, so this is all about building what's being described in this article as an alliance to deny carbon. And that means, uh, well, what does that mean? That effectively, well, we've touched on this, that means life to most people. David, so you must be very impressed with what Mark's up to. Well, the, this all came from the Club of Rome, right? And their report, um, to a first global revolution, where they said the real enemy then is humanity itself. And this is what the, 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 the good people at JCB probably don't realise. They thought they were being asked to solve a technical problem so that everyone could go on having a vibrant economy and their diggers, and which, which some of them work about 18 hours a day, almost every day of the year, they're, they're very intensively used, uh, could carry on working with that, that degree of, in, of intensity and not spend most of their time charging. And uh, they went and very quickly solved the problem. Um, that's not really what's the, what the agenda is. The agenda is humanity's the enemy. Right? We don't want solutions that allow humanity to thrive because we are the enemy. And we are the carbon footprint. And of course, they're simply saying they're going to get rid of that carbon footprint. Yes, indeed. So are there any dissenting voices? Well, mainstream press wouldn't have you believe so. But uh, let's have a look at the Manila Times. Uh, we have to go abroad to find any kind of uh, uh, any kind of counter narrative here. So uh, the headline is uh, UN chief cries code red for humanity. Skeptics decry false alarm and dishonesty. So let's just uh, get some quotes from a couple of uh, these skeptics. First of all, Bjorn Lomberg, uh, who's a Swedish economist. Uh, he's saying, you've probably seen the latest alarming headlines. Rising sea levels from climate change could flood 187 million people out of their homes. Uh, but don't believe it, he said. That figure is unrealistic and it isn't even new. It appears in a new scholarly paper whose authors plucked it from a paper published in 2011. And what the earlier paper actually found was that 187 million could be forced to move in the unlikely event that no one does anything in the next 80 years. In real life, the 2011 paper explained that humans adapt proactively and such adaptation can greatly reduce the possible impacts. That sober scientific findings get less attention than alarming and far-fetched scenarios. Uh, and then we've got Richard Lindzen here from MIT, uh, also quoted by the Manila Times, uh, consider what the climate system actually is. This system consists in two uh, turbulent fluids interacting with each other. Uh, they're on a rotating planet that's differently heated, uh, sorry, differentially heated by the sun. Uh, a, vivid, a vital constituent of the atmospheric component is water in the liquid, solid and vapor phases. And the changes in phase have vast energetic ramifications. Uh, the energy budget of this system involves the absorption and retransmission of about 200 watts per square meter. That's called insulation. That's the amount of energy that, from the sun that hits the Earth's surface, surface on average. Doubling CO2, he says, involves a 2% perturbation on this budget. Uh, so do minor changes in clouds, ocean circulations and other features, uh, uh, sorry, and other features and such changes are common. Sorry, it should have been so do minor changes. Uh, in this complex multi-factor system, what is the likelihood that the climate, which itself consists of many variables and not just globally average temperature anomalies, 
uh, is controlled by a 2% perturbation in the energy budget due to just one of the numerous variables, namely CO2. And he goes on to say, believing this pretty, is pretty close to believing in magic. After all, science is a mode of inquiry rather than a belief structure. And I thought that was a particularly pertinent uh, uh, comment, David. Yes, science used to be the search for truth. It has become a belief structure. It's become scientism. We've seen it in COVID. We've seen it in uh, COP26 and global warming. It's all about belief and belief that has political ramifications and political opportunities uh, associated with it. Belief that gets you power. It's not any longer to do with the search for truth. Otherwise, this would have been laughed out of court many, many years ago. Indeed. Right. There's nothing more to say about no. it, really. That's a really excellent summary you've both provided, showing the madness of, of what is really green fascism. Um, so we will uh, keep uh, watching and uh, keep laughing at what's going on at COP26, no doubt, and uh, keep trying to keep some perspective on it. So let's uh, move on. If you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please uh, head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Uh, and also, please do share our material on the various platforms. Uh, and once again, a massive thank you to everybody who has uh, ordered a hoodie from the shop. Yeah, and people do seem to be really pleased with them and say the quality is very high, which is only appropriate for the UK column, Absolutely. of course. Now, more good news. A few days ago, we showed you this. This was uh, a GoFundMe for David Noakes. It was sitting at 190 uh, pounds, uh, looking to raise £50,000 to help pay for uh, legal defence to get David Noakes out of prison. He suffered hugely from being in uh, pretty traumatic conditions in the French prison. Well, I'm pleased to say that thanks to the UK column um, uh, efforts, uh, that's now standing at uh, 10600 plus, actually, because more donations have gone in since I created this slide. And I'm also going to say that UK Column will be putting another £500 into this. So it's going extremely well. A very big thank you from all of us here at UK Column for your generosity. And uh, basically, if we can encourage people who may only be able to give a pound, uh, if you can do that, many hands make light work. And uh, this man deserves some help particularly as he's now facing uh, yet another attempt at double jeopardy from Switzerland. Mm. Um, okay, now, uh, on Saturday, there was a freedom rally going on in London. Uh, we mentioned it on last Wednesday's programme. Uh, well done to everybody that went. But for the, well, for the first time that I'm aware of anyway, it's had some coverage in the mainstream press. Uh, thousands of anti-vaccine passport protesters marched through London over government's Plan B and could see COVID passes sorry, that could see COVID passes introduced in nightclubs and sports events, said the Mail Online. Protesters marched through Piccadilly Circus at around 1 p.m. holding signs reading, no vaccine passports. Some demonstrators held signs saying medical freedom, while others flew the St. George's flag. Uh, number 10 is considering introducing COVID passes at nightclubs and large events under its winter plan B. Um, so uh, uh, we, I think, Thought we had a bit of video, but we seem to have missed that one out. So I do apologise for that. But uh, nonetheless, uh, the <laughs> Mail's coverage wasn't necessarily the best. Having said all that, uh, they, uh, the captions on the images and so on were very much about you know trouble with the police and 
people getting into the faces of police and being aggressive and all this kind of stuff. Uh, it was completely disingenuous to undermine, undermine it, it absolutely as usual. in this case. So look, I, th I had a little bit of video, but I haven't uh, uh, included it here, so I do apologize. For well, that. we could try and include that on, on Wednesday. Yes. So we are recognizing the fact that so many people were there and doing their bit. Well done. Uh, well, let's move on to some emails that have come into UK column. And a thank you to Tasha here, who gave some information. I'm encouraging people to freeze the screen to read this. Uh, but we reported on the, uh, the war with the French over fishing rights off the coast of France. Of course, that a few days ago was a bigger war than climate change. But um, so if you wanted more details on the vessel concerned and how to track vessels, this is all here on screen. So thank you very much to Tasha to, for doing the research. We also had an email in with this really excellent uh, little bit of analysis by Richard North in Turbulent Times. And it's talking about David Amos and his uh, relations with Qatar. Now, obviously it's a very emotive, the man has died very sadly, um, but uh, I think we are entitled to ask questions about what's been going on in the background and what well, those um, issues may have done to stir up the problems that then ensued. So have a look at Turbulent Times and you're looking for politics to Camels Amis. And it's very, very interesting reading. Uh, this one's also very interesting reading because a person said to, the, to us that they had a shotgun license, but today they'd received what they feel is a very sinister letter from the county police pointing quite clearly at mental instability re resulting from COVID stress. And the person says that gun licensing has had a secret agenda of successive governments, starting with the false flags of Hungerford, followed by Dunblane, and more recently Plymouth, the first two of which brought about Orwellian controls for the licensing of guns. Whether or not one supports these restrictions isn't an issue. Is a clear covert trend to eliminate self-defense using firearms and the latest event as clear pointers to the final category, the shotgun. Furthermore, the banning of lock knives and now the mysterious unverified Norway bow and arrow massacre consolidate the attack. The letter and leaflet, which we'll show you in a second, seem innocent enough, but in my humble opinion, are a veil which hides the obvious link to domestic terrorism. Yet another thing to prepare for as they use opinions to pigeonhole now with the potential for unrest as society may disintegrate. The populace must be disarmed. However, I do wonder if the royalty who shoot on the nearby moors have received one. That's a very good point, actually. If you shoot off a few rounds, that can't be good for the, for the climate, surely. No. That could trigger global warming, I would have thought, a few shotgun blasts. Right, here we are. So this is the letter. As from Cumbria Firearms, um, it says the previous 12 months have been very challenging due to the impact of COVID-19, which has impacted on all of us. This letter and enclosed leaflet provides information about how to keep yourself, your family and friends safe. I won't go into the detail. But we'll just give you the headlines here. Look after yourself. Look out for others. Uh, what to do in a mental health emergency. Uh, what to do in a suicide emergency. And then it starts to cheer people up because it says things will get better. COVID-19 vaccination is helping to protect people. Well, we've heard all that before. Um, so this is signed by Superintendent Carl Patrick. 
Cumbria Constabulary Suicide Prevention. Do you, do you get a warm feeling that the police are now involved in suicide prevention, uh, Mike? No. No, I don't. Uh, this is the leaflet, uh, well-being and mental health during COVID-19, looking after yourself and others. Uh, lots of good advice there, keeping connected, keeping a routine, being kind to others, something the police do on All a daily time. basis, yeah. daily basis. Learn new things, but don't learn anything about vaccine adverse reactions because the same police will put you in prison for that. And on it goes, get help early. Uh, so they've got your health. Uh, that's the briefing in the police station. Look out for others. Mental health crisis and thoughts of suicide. Every life matters. Uh, David, very quickly, just wonderful to see our police so deeply involved in looking after citizens' mental health. Yes, well-being means happiness. So the police are now there. They're, 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 the, they're the happy police, the joke police. You, you, they, they will get involved if you're not sufficiently happy. Um, Nicola Sturgeon's trying to run an entire economy based on well-being. It's a well-being-based economy. That's, that's what's going to save us from slumps and having no money and an economy based on, on everyone working for the state. It's, it's going to be a well-being-based economy. She can't define it. She doesn't know what it is. Tried to define it. The definition was thrown out by the UK Supreme Court. But it's still going to be the basis of policing and the economy. Well-being is everything. And uh, one day we might even find out exactly what it is. <laughs> one day. Uh, well, let's move on to, to this one. Uh, somebody's thanking us for advice we gave reference COVID passes because, of course, we were able to point people at official sources to get a pass. So um, this uh, viewer says, dear sir, I've contacted UK Column on a few occasions and one was to thank you for the information as to where to obtain a lanyard for exemption for a, a C test and vaccination. I was thrilled to receive my lanyard, but I now see on the government website from the 25th of December, if you're unable to get vaccinated, you'll have to use the NHS COVID pass in the same way that people who are fully vaccinated use it. You have to call a certain number and not your GP for a form and then your GP or a medical professional will give you the answer as to whether you can have the exemption pass. You can't actually phone your GP at the moment, Mike, can you? It's tricky. It's a tricky one. I'm very concerned about this. I can see what's happening in Australia going on here. I will not be allowed into some shops or other places unless I have a pass. In fact, everyone will have to have a pass. Uh, also, if the medical professional is anything like the ones used by the Department of Work and Pensions, then I do believe it would be more or less impossible to get an exemption. Please look into this, as before the government stated that those exempt only had to say they were now, uh, sorry, it is but now it's changed, and also that paper exemptions are on the way for people like myself. Well, we will try and have a look into this, but we're also going to say to our viewers, help us out, and could you do some research on where we think this is going for COVID passes. Now, this one is a bit uh, uh, on the serious side because somebody took it upon themselves to challenge why there seemed to be an increase in, um, in uh, breathing, essentially viral breathing problems with children. They put in a freedom of information request to Cornwall's uh, NHS Trust. And uh, this, is the, uh, uh, this is the response, your request for information uh, with regard to RSV. Now, what is this? Uh, this is the NHS definition. 
uh, respiratory synthal virus, RSV, symptoms transmissions uh, prevention, uh, is an enveloped RNA virus in the same family as the human uh, para-influenza viruses and mumps and measles viruses. RSV is one of the common viruses that cause coughs and colds in winter. Now, I know that the reason that this freedom of information was put in is because uh, the viewer was interested that rates seem to be going up in children following vaccination. Uh, this is the response that came through to three questions. Is uh, A&E preparing for an influx of paediatric admissions with RSV? and have been given guidance to prepare as such. Please, could you confirm? Second question, what measures and risk assessments are in place to cope with so many potentially very sick children and babies? Who gave Royal Cornwall Hospital Trust this information? On what model are they working from? Please, could you give me sight of such guidance and when and, and who, when and who, or how you receive it? I think that must be. So here it is, it says A&E is prepared for any surge in paediatric patients attending the department. Primary care has plans to reduce the referrals. There is already a plan to manage surges in paediatric capacity. And this is tried and tested and enacted once the department has seven children. They will therefore follow the usual pathway for escalation. Inpatients have an escalation plan for patient capacity and working with the paediatric critical care network for escalation for sick children re requiring a higher level of care than RCHT would normally provide. Then it goes on to say the trust has an escalate, escalation plan, working with primary care for admission avoidance and ensuring close working relationships. And it goes on to say that there's a paediatric criti critical care network, and that's with NHS England and NHS improvements and the Kerno. Um, CCG, and they've all had input into the management. So the whole point of this FOI is that clearly the hospitals knew that a surge was coming because they've got preparatory plans in place. And the question that really needs to be asked is, was this because they knew there was going to be a surge as a result of the increase in vaccinations? We can't answer that question. Uh, well, what we can say, though, is that RSV uh, is on the list of three it's one of the big three this is why this winter according to the british government is going to be horrendous we're going to have COVID, influenza and rsv hitting us all at the same time but we don't need to worry because i believe it's pfizer has a vaccine for that in development um so so a combined uh covid influenza and rsv uh, vaccine is on its way. Um, I just want to uh, draw people's attention to a new article that went up over the weekend. Uh, what explains the rising cases amongst the vaccinated uh, is the question. And uh, this is the second uh, article of a series from Dr. Mike Williams. So it follows on from uh, from a previous one uh, published a couple of months ago. Uh, I do, I'm going to cover this in more detail on Wednesday's program, but I do recommend everybody reads this. Uh, and uh, share it as uh, widely as you possibly can. Excellent. So where does that take us? Um, Christopher Griggs, media release, midwives challenging legality of vaccination order, David. Yes, this takes us to New Zealand. So this is a media press release here from the 27th of October, uh, not covered in New Zealand by the New Zealand mainstream press. Uh, so we're delighted to be covering it, uh, given the... Uh, failure to do so. It reads, late on Friday, the 22nd of October, the Minister of COVID-19 Response issued an order 
which amended the COVID-19 Public Health Response Vaccinations Order 2021. That order was purportedly made under COVID-19 Public Health Response Act 2020. It now specifies that unless midwives submit to receiving a COVID-19 vaccination by 15th November 2021, they will lose their livelihoods and their vocation. New Zealand Midwives Collective is a group of midwives from around New Zealand who have come together to oppose mandatory vaccination and uphold the right to informed choice and consent. On Monday, a small group of midwives filed an application on behalf of the collective asking the High Court to declare the vaccination order invalid. So they have taken it to the highest court in the land. Uh, it, it continues, uh, the midwives collective strongly oppose any restrictions being placed on informed consent a fundamental principle of, of midwifery in our country. Um, and they, they also point out the, the effect this will have on midwifery services. The collective understands that between 200 and 300 New Zealand midwives will decline the COVID-19 vaccination. That's between 8 and 10% of all practicing midwives. If the order is not struck down, these, mid, uh, these midwives will be required to stop work on the 15th of November. Our maternity system is already desperately short of midwives the government continue to ignore our pleas to make urgent changes. There are already significant midwif midwifery roster gaps. The decision to mandate the COVID-19 vaccine and subsequent reduction in hospital midwifery midwife numbers will further increase uh, the current workforce force pressure um, and make it unsafe for the mothers and families for whom they care. And they conclude uh, we are standing up to protect the rights of women. Our profession has always drawn a line when it comes to informed consent and bodily autonomy. This is not just a midwifery issue. This is a human issue, a feminist issue, and a civil rights issue. And they conclude we are midwives supporting midwives who have the same rights as the women for whom we care. So uh, we'll follow that story in, in detail, and we hope to have a, a, a full uh, report on this and an interview uh, with this group of midwives later in the week. Um, and uh, well, let's move on to Jacinda then. What's she been up to? This is a wonderful tweet, a tweet from an account called Neil Ferguson's Calculator. That alone is a wonderful name for a Twitter account. Uh, and uh, Neil, Fer Neil Ferguson's Calculator writes, I'm trying to help my, my friend Jacinda settle an argument. She's looking for any examples of political leaders who have segregated society into two tiers and have later ended up on the right side of history. Let me know if you find any. Thanks. I think that is splendid. Uh, which moves us on to a bit of video. Yes, also uh, splendid. This is a message for the unvaccinated. Hi, this is a little message to the unvaccinated. Ugh. You are killing everyone. It's your fault. You're being selfish. So get the vaccine because I'm vaccinated. I am vaccinated. Okay. And so I'm protected because the vaccine is safe and effective. So if you're around me and you're unvaccinated, then you're putting me at, at well, you're not. You're, okay. So you're selfish because if I'm protected and you're around me, then I'm, then I'm fine, but you're, but you're me. Sorry. If you're not vaccinated, then you're not, it's your, um, you're racist is what I'm saying. Oh, David, that hits the nail on the head. That is the full vaccination strategy for worldwide governments in what, 30 seconds. That's it. It doesn't actually get any more rational than that. 
Um, so let's uh, head over to the United States then and uh, the Los Angeles Times here. Sheriff warns vaccine mandate causing mass exodus among personnel. So we've, we've covered the, the loss of maybe 10% of all the midwives in New Zealand. Um, this same uh, problem is uh, starting to uh, be, be highlighted all over the world. America here, uh, Los Angeles uh, County Sheriff um, continues to rail against the, the, the county's vaccine, uh, sorry, vaccine mandate, warning it is causing a mass exodus. Quote, I've repeatedly stated the dangers to public safety when 20 to 30% of my workforce is no longer available to provide service, and those dangers are quickly becoming reality. So 10% of midwives, perhaps 30% of the police, who knows how many firefighters, you're going to see increasing breakdown of all public services. You're going to see increasing breakdown of private services too, because it's quite likely that at least some of the some private companies will follow the same policy agenda, feeling due to contracts with the state or other pressures that they have to. Now, um, I've got a couple of uh, a, a, there's a cartoon here that, that illustrates, I think, the the nature of the the response. Um, vis-a-vis -vis children. So here you've got a whole group of people who are huddling in fear um, and getting their mRNA boosters. And, and the children are standing in front and they're being, they're being hit by in, incoming uh, arrow-like uh, hypodermic needles. And th this, this gets to a truth that one of the reasons that we're apparently vaccinating children, um, and we know already that there have been some fatalities, some children have died due to this, uh, we're vaccinating children not because the children are at risk of COVID. We're vaccinating children because the older adult population has been convinced to be so afraid of COVID that they are afraid of anything that's unvaccinated. And therefore, their fear is driving the vaccination of the children, not any risk to the children. And yeah, that, uh, that's going to yeah. cause, cause lives. Yeah, but this comes back to the point that the, the guy in the video was making. And it's a point that we've made many, many times on this program over the last 18 months. What risk, if the vaccine works, what is the risk of an unvaccinated person to a vaccinated person? And, you know, the, every time we have, we had Tony Blair on, uh, uh, quoted on the program a couple of weeks ago, every uh, Nicholas Sturgeon, every political leader is trying to convince uh, the vaccinated population that they need to be fearful of the unvaccinated population, that all their woes are caused by the unvaccinated population and their narrative doesn't stand but it, the narrative it does. doesn't stack up and 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 it, but it's been so effective in spreading fear that we saw last week Jacinda in New Zealand was saying well the reason that we need to have really draconian mandates to force people to be vaccinated is we want the ones who are already vaccinated to have the confidence to come out of the houses and behave normally We've been so successful in terrifying these people, they won't, they won't go back to normal unless we can assure them that everyone's vaccinated. And we can only do that if we're using coercive um, rules that make that it means that if you don't get vaccinated, you don't work uh, and your life is effectively ruined. Yes. Just like to add to that, David, of course, this agenda does make sense if you accept that the overall policy agenda by governments in UK or other governments worldwide is to create division 
uh, and fear, then you, you've uh, got the basis for the fact that they're looking to transform society. A little bit later in today's news, we're going to be looking into those areas. Um, okay, and that brings us then to a couple of graphs, David, and uh, the question, what is causing all the deaths in under 45s? It ain't COVID. What is it? Yes, this is the question we've been asking here. You've got the excellent Ivor Cummings at, at Fat Emperor. He is asking it. Um, and a few others are asking it. The mainstream media is not asking it. The BBC isn't asking it. Um, it's not COVID, uh, but the deaths are now very, very substantial in Europe and in America. Way above, uh, way above normal. Lots of excess deaths. It's not COVID. Is it the lockdown? Is it the vaccine? We don't know, and the mainstream media and medical profession are doing their very best to make sure that we don't find out. Yes, come on, Phil Fact, let's get your act together. You're supposed to be the fact checker. Let's find out what is causing this, uh, because uh, nobody's telling us from the Office for National Statistics. They publish their graph every week, which shows the amount of excess mortality there is. They colour it between COVID and non-COVID, but they offer no explanation as to what the actual cause is. Um, and uh, so then we've got the Telegraph. Lockdown fanatics should be ashamed of themselves. Yes, I thought this was worth um, just recognising that, that as we see the, the COVID um, narrative fall apart, um, we're now seeing no less a publication than the Telegraph actually published something that it reads like it was a UK column publication from about 18 months ago. Uh, so they're, they're saying that those who have called for Plan B have already seen the predictions proven wrong yet again. These prognosticators of doom have been wrong time after time. Not just a little wrong, epically wrong. Right. So this is this is good stuff. Um, the the um, uh, this could have been on the UK column. Right. So they they, they go on to say. Uh, maybe other things might threaten our health soon. A new flu epidemic is a possibility. COVID will become endemic after a bumpy transition over the next year or two. Tens of thousands of people will catch it every day, forever. All of us will get it many times, but the epidemic is over and it's time for those whose predictions have been so wrong to lick their intellectual wounds and learn some badly needed lessons in humility. Um, to get that in the Telegraph, I think, is, is, is a moment worth, worth noting, that the mainstream is being forced to admit that the, the narrative doesn't stack up, the lockdown narrative doesn't stack up. None of the so-called solutions are solutions to anything. They simply exacerbate the problem. There is no justification for the solutions, and the narrative is threadbare, and it's starting to be recognised even in the Telegraph. Well, it's about time, uh, but they haven't. Uh, it's a bit late, too little, too late yeah. by, by a long way. OK, so uh, just very briefly, I just wanted to mention this because this narrative is continuing to build. Uh, this is the Washington Post. Russian troop movements near Ukraine border prompt concern in US and Europe. Uh, and of course, what's the source? Unnamed officials. We don't know what level they're at. We don't know who they are uh, from the United States and from Ukraine, told the Washington Post that Russians are engaged in, quotes, Another buildup of troops on the border with Ukraine. Uh, they said the troop movements have uh, caused more concern uh, than those that uh, came up in April when uh, there was the largest buildup of troops uh, near the Ukrainian border for years. Um, and a Ukrainian official, according to this article, said uh, 80 to 90,000 Russian troops are along the border. Uh, and this comes, uh, of course, uh, as uh, this conflict between Ukraine 
uh, and the Russian-backed separatists in Donbass uh, enters a new stage, uh, and and so on. So uh, the point is, it's not a drill, said uh, Michael Kaufman, from who's from the director of Russia Studies program at the Virginia uh, Analysis Group. We might call it CNA. Um, the point is, this is not a drill. It doesn't appear to be a training exercise. Something is happening. What is it? They bring up this narrative, David, once every few months. Uh, and of course, it's got nothing at all to do with uh, what NATO's doing or what the European Union's doing or what the United Kingdom's doing. It's got nothing to do with what Ukraine's doing. It's only to do with what Russia's doing because Russia are the aggressor here. Uh, and uh, we've got to always remember that. And we've got to be scared of Russia as much as we possibly can be. Yes, and remember that we are unconditionally committed to the defence of Ukraine, the courtesy of uh, Theresa May, who went to uh, uh, the, the Eastern Partnership meeting of the EU and made such a commitment. And um, it's all about the defence of Europe. And the fact that it's not in NATO or the EU, these are details, Mike. Don't worry, don't worry your pretty head about this. The Russians are such a threat that we will get involved with, uh, with conflict in the Ukraine because reasons. Uh, and what are we going to get involved with, Brian? That's my question. Uh, other people's lives. Yes. Is we're going to use uh, cannon fodder to uh, do that. But of course, if our promise in Ukraine is as good as it was to the Polish at the start of the Second World War, the Ukrainians are in for a bit of a rough time. Well, indeed. Right, let's move on to economy then. And uh, well, here we've got the uh, S&P. And their headline is annual home price gains remained high in August, according to S&P CoreLogic Case Shiller data uh, index. And this is, of course, United States, but it, it very much reflects the kind of thing that we're seeing over here. So what they're saying is, I mean, this report came out in September. It's talking about August numbers. They're saying that uh, homes in the United States have reached $408,000 as a median price. That's 18.7% higher than September 2020. Uh, and uh, the deputy chief economist at CoreLogic, whose name is Selma Hep, uh, said persistently strong demand among traditional home buyers has been amplified by increasing the demand uh, among investors this summer. While strong home prices appreciation rates uh, are narrowing the pool of buyers, particularly first time buyers, uh, the depth and supply and demand imbalance uh, and robust demand among higher income earners will continue to push prices higher. Now, we uh, have been told that in, in the UK, a large uh, part of the driver here, which is pretty much unstated as far as I'm aware in the mainstream press, is uh, people separating uh, as a result of uh, lockdown and being forced to stay, to get, you know, it's forced into their homes during lockdown. So people have separated, that's increased some housing demand. But the other point they're making here is that there are big investors are getting involved as well. So in this case, they're talking about uh, Blackstone, uh, that they are owning hundreds of thousands of single family homes uh, for rent and making them available for rent. And of course, because house prices are going up so high, people are being forced into the rental market. Uh, and then uh, the uh, core logic uh, saying that the average national rent in the United States has risen in September by 9.8% uh, as compared to September 2020. And then one of the other big players in the United States is called Invitation Homes, Inc., uh, and they own about 80,000 rental homes across the US. Uh, they've increased rents by 11% in the third quarter of this year alone. Uh, and they raised rents by 8% on renewals and 18% on new leases. Um, and so apparently uh, the S&P has a general, a category for this. It's called shelter. 
That's their category for this type of uh, information. Uh, and this is the fastest inflating consumer or household expenditure in the United States at the moment, David. Uh, but of course, uh, as with the UK, house price inflation and rents inflation is not included in the inflation figures. So it doesn't make the headlines. Yes, uh, because the inflation figures are the most manipulated of all uh, of all government statistics because uh, pensions and other very large ticket items are indexed back to them. Therefore, over the years, they have been um, monkeyed with so many times that they're no longer really relevant. Um, the, uh, the, the huge increase in price of homes obviously affects um, families, affects people all around the country. I did pick up the, the percentage in the UK uh, that is uh, investment, you know, buy-to-let type investment. Um, it's 25% of all house, house purchases. So it's a yeah. very substantial part of the market, and that will be driving figures higher uh, and prices higher. And, of course, the reason for that is holding cash in an inflationary environment is insane. And if you've got an inflationary environment and zero interest rates, then getting uh, getting your cash into property, albeit with a lot of debt, starts to look very attractive. People have uh, jumped at that. They've loaded up with debt. Uh, they've loaded up with property. And um, we will see how that works out. I seem to remember we've been this way before, but I'm, I'm sure it will be okay. I'm sure it will. Uh, in the meantime, in Australia, the central bank, uh, well, the headline is Australia's central bank loses yield control as bonds melt down. Yeah, this is a, this is the first sign of central banks losing control, losing control of what they what they are stating of their policy is. Um, they can no longer deliver upon. So the the bond uh, yield surges to 075 percent against a target of 0.1%. So it's seven and a half times higher than it's meant to be, and and the bank has not been able to defend its its peg. Um, and uh, Reuters uh, reporting this continue on to say the European Central Bank and Thursday tried to push back against market, market hawks, but with scant success as bond yields jumped across the continent. Many central banks are conceding that global inflationary pressures look like being more lasting than first thought, given supply bottlenecks and surging energy prices. So again, we're still pretending it's a supply bottleneck problem. Uh, but but slowly but surely we're admitting, yes, it's inflation and it's going to be rather huge. I loved the following cartoon. I thought this was absolutely perfect. Right, uh, so you have someone crushed on the hoof of an elephant. The, the elephant's got the word inflation on its, on its covering blanket. And the person who's been crushed underfoot uh, is saying, oh, that elephant in the room. So that this is this is what the central bankers will be. They will be wait, they will continue denying the elephants in the room until they are flattened by its foot. Um, and then then they'll notice that there's an elephant in the room, not before. Um, and a, a second uh, bit of cartoon here, this is how inflation works. You see, the people who get the money when it's first created, banks, insurance agencies, that type of thing, politicians, uh, they do very well. They, they, they get a, a lot of money. They can spend it while it's still worth something. Uh, people further down the chain, they, they do less well. They get some of the money a little, a little bit later when it's worth less. And people at the bottom of the chain, your people on low incomes, 
people on maybe a fixed a fixed income like pensioners, they get very little. And by the time they get it, uh, it's not worth anything because inflation has already eaten away the value. So it, it's a huge, it's not only a, a, a wealth um, tax, a stealthy wealth tax, it's a huge wealth transfer uh, from the have-nots to the haves. Um, okay, now look, uh, we're rapidly running out of time. So just very briefly on this, if we could. Uh, so from Mises Wire, Venezuelans turned to gold nuggets as the local currency implodes. Yes, so this is another moment, another high point in the wonderful history of, uh, of, of government fiat currency. So the Venezuelan government recently lopped off six zeros from its hyperinflating currency, the Bolivar. A million bolivars was worth 25 cents. Uh, so they've knocked off six zeros. So you can now have a, a hundred bolivar note, which is now worth $25. That's the highest you can have. And um, this is this is very uh, handy because uh, it's it's seven million old belt bolivars to get a loaf of bread. So what's happening is the people are making their own currency. They're getting nuggets of gold and they're they're um, shaving off basically grams of gold and they're using that as a currency instead of the worthless paper um, it just goes to show you that uh, money is a market phenomenon people will sort this out they actually do not need a government and do not need central banks they can sort it out themselves and when central banks fail and destroy the money as they so often do and people will have to sort it out themselves they'll have no choice Okay, David, thank you for that. Well, if, if um, change in society can be created by the banks directly through their uh, changes to uh, money, money supply, we've got to look to the other sources, and that is that putting money into organisations who are out from the uh, get-go for change. We'd like to thank the uh, Sheffield viewer who said we should be paying attention to this little organisation, uh, it's called The Citizens. Um, now, as you see from the uh, image on the site, it says, uh, on screen, sorry, it says, new site coming soon. Uh, there's a contact, info at thecitizens.com and a press inquiries. Um, but that site is not yet live, but it says The Citizens is funded through grants from Ford Foundation. David, I think you gave them a mention earlier. Luminate, uh, Joseph Roundtree Trust, uh, public donations. We're a not-for-profit organisation, limited by guarantee. And then it says company information, and there's a little red here, which you can click on. We'll come on to that in a second. Uh, but essentially, the Sheffield viewer said, you need to pay attention to this lot because they seem to be uh, coming into existence in order to follow through on anti-vaxxers and also a little bit of uh, fact-checking a la full fact. Um, so let's... Uh, Put this into a little bit of graphic. We've got this little organization suddenly pops up, uh, but it's got uh, funding from the Ford Foundation. If you go to the Ford Foundation website, it says a lot of things, but I picked up on the fact that this headline says disrupting systems to advance social justice. So you're going to use money and organizations to create turbulence and problems and breakdown in society in order to get the change you want. Well, not the change you want, it's gonna be the change that Ford Foundation thinks they want. Uh, then we've got Joseph Roundtree Reform Trust. And again, we've got a similar message really, trusting in change, a story of reform. So you're gonna trust uh, Joseph Roundtree Reform Trust to use its huge wealth 
to create change, not the change we've asked for or the, the general public has asked for, but Joseph Roundtree wants. And then on the side, we've got Illuminate. Uh, they're going to reimagine the rules of the road. They're going to equip civil society. They're going to protect and advance the gains we've made in the last decade. And we're going to prevent further retrenchment of core elements of healthy democracies. Now, it's got an eBay stuck in the corner. And if you don't understand why that is, it's because uh, Luminate was created by the owners of eBay. So we've got Ford foundation we've we've got motor cars we've got chocolate manufacturers and we've got ebay using their money in order to change society but let's have a, a little look at this luminate uh, clip uh, which uh, just um, shows us a little bit about what they're up to I don't see the problem, Brian. I mean, they, they're talking about uh, supporting independent media, for example. They must be banging on our doors. They're they? going to support democracy. They're going to put, uh, support people at the bottom of the pile. They're going, we're going to live wonderful lives, Mike. We could, we could really dismantle the column now, go home, uh, because nothing, to, uh, nothing more to worry about. David, you're smiling as you watch that lot. But of course, they're talking about $314 million put into organizations to create change that they've decided. This hasn't been discussed with the ordinary voter. No, uh, there's two things that struck me watching that. One was the color scheme, black and white, which is an interesting choice of color scheme. Um, and the second thing was everything's collective. Uh, there's no individuality, it's all groups. It's all influencing groups, it's all representative democracy, it's all smoke and mirrors, and you know, you, you power will be more responsive. Really, will it? Okay, how does that work? Responsive to whom? Well, to, Responsive to the, to the individual? No. <laughs> to the elite who've got all the money in the first place. So this is just another uh, snapshot from Luminate Strategic Framework. Uh, so you can see we've got vision, a world where people and institutions can work together, mission outcomes, tells you where they're working, Africa, Asia, Latin America, United States, Western Europe, and they're, they're working throughout the layers of society. Somebody 
in the chat room has said communitarianism. We would agree with that. Uh, here's the Ford Foundation. And basically, um, sorry, this should be animate. Yeah, here we are. If you go to their website, we invest in transformative ideas, individuals and institutions. So the Ford Foundation changing our world by buying and funding these little groups who are going to help disrupt society to create the change that they want, not we want. And if we pop on to Joseph Rowntree Reform Trust, uh, this is just an example of the things they get up to because uh, they've been working to get more 16 and 17 year olds voting in Wales. We could have a debate on what a 16 year old knows and uh, how they can influence society and what they would bring to society. But most people will have no idea that the voting structure in Wales has been influenced by money from this pernicious charity. So if we go back to all the Citizens Limited, uh, when you click on the red link on their screen, it takes you through to this part of the formal information on the company structure. So it's all the Citizens Limited, the old workshop, one Eccleshaw Road, South Sheffield, United Kingdom. And uh, this is the main lady, Clara Frances Maguire. Um, so there we are, there's the detail on her. Um, we followed through, this is a LinkedIn page, executive director of the Citizens, but she's also head of growth and investment at the Good Lab, well worth looking at, NED at IBS Coach and on hand, previously chief operating officer of We Are Pop-Up, director of the Branson Centres, now that's connected with the man himself, and co-founder of Architecture Zero Zero. So we're not quite sure what this uh, organisation is up to. We're going to wait for that website to go live, but it will be pretty interesting to see. Um, David, uh, we're going to have to be very, very brief on this one, but let's just uh, finish on, uh, on this section here. Uh, this is uh, the American Medical Association. Uh, what has happened to them? Well, what indeed. Um, this is the American Medical Association telling you how to think and how to speak, which words you can use, which words you can't use, which words you mustn't use. This is a guide to language, narrative and concepts by the AMA and the AAMC, Centre for Health Justice. Now, uh, in this book, which is well worth the read, um, there's, there is a pyramid. There's always a pyramid. Uh, this time it's, it's um, uh, from uh, counter-narrating the attacks on critical race theory. Um, so it talks about, uh, you start off with a message, a story, a narrative, and a deep narrative. And it's quite interesting that the top of the pyramid is not named. I wonder why that is. Uh, so what they're doing here is they've got a language for promoting health e equity, not equality, equity. Um, so they're listing here principles and associated terms, things you can't say, things you should substitute. Um, for example, for the commonly used term black, you can substitute the term black, but with a capital letter. It's very important to put that capital letter in, right, because they're trying to make a particular point. It's to do with critical race theory. So we're now seeing critical race theory and queer theory um, which is two, two parts of critical theory, completely taking over the American Medical Association. They have intellectually collapsed. They have intellectually surrendered. Um, it's interesting to note that you can't use the term Caucasian. You can use the term white, but it must have a small letter. You can't capitalise white. That would be bad. Uh, equality is out. Equity is in. 
So that means discriminating against people for reasons. Um, fairness is out, social justice is in. Fairness is too simple and small a concept. Social justice is all about the standard of rightness and fairness. So exactly how that works, I don't know, but there we go. Um, and um, race-based medicine is out and race-conscious medicine is in. Now, I have a lot of problems with the general definition of races and I have no time to go into that here, but it does seem to be ignoring the fact that depending on your uh, heritage uh, genetically, you're likely to have more or less problems with certain diseases and they don't seem to be very keen on recognising that anymore, which does seem strange for the American Medical Association. So they're telling you how to think. You've got to think keenly, you've got to listen deeply. Not quite sure how you do that, but I'm sure they know. You've got to act intentionally because reasons, right? Because that's not that's that's <laughs> that's not just repeating yourself. Uh, and reflect frequently because you know you know you might be white. You got to you got to check these things out. Uh, and then they give you a glossary of terms, a very long glossary of terms at the end. Individualism, individualism, individualism is bad. Uh, philosophy and a group of ideas expressed in symbols, practices, and stories that support the belief that self-sufficient individuals are, are rational beings who freely make consumer-like choices independent of political influences, having conditions or his, uh, uh, living conditions or historical context. As a philosophy, it is problematic. It obscures the dynamics of group domination. So individualism is problematic. Whiteness is even worse. Yeah, it's but David, important hold, hold to differentiate. On a second. Whiteness there, they've got a capital W. They're breaking their own rules. No, 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 no. Whiteness is a capital W. White. Yeah, bear with me. You, I'm about to explain. It is important to differentiate white without the capital W, a category of racial classification with no scientific basis. So being black has a scientific basis, but being white doesn't have a scientific basis. They are just that inconsistent. Uh, and, and whiteness, and they go on to define whiteness as basically, uh, well, it's very rambling, but um, yeah, things they don't like. Uh, they, they're, they're defining critical race theory because they're pushing that. They're defining intersectionality, of course, because they're pushing that. So here we see the American Medical Association is telling people, is reframing their members, is trying to change how people think. It's all based on critical theory, queer theory, critical race theory. This is about dividing people. This is about putting people at one another's throats. And it will be accompanied by a corresponding collapse in the confidence in the medical profession and the ability of the medical profession to do core skills competently and well, because they'll be too busy learning all of this um, uh, evil philosophy. Yes. Any comments? Well, uh, the key thing is it's becoming so obvious when we can when we can actually look at look at stuff. So we've got to look at all these organisations who is who are pushing this nonsense agenda. It's very dangerous, but it is still nonsense. Uh, we're going to look at who's pushing it and who's funding them. And every time we do that, we come back to these huge foundations, such as the World Economic Forum or the um, Ford Foundation or Joseph Roundtree or the Young Foundation. These are the change agents operating the disruption. Mm. Okay, well, look, we're right out of time. So, we're, David, we're just going to end with... Uh, with one final cartoon, if you would like to explain it. One, one wonderful cartoon. So it's Halloween, the little kids are good guys and are trick-and-treating round the doors. 
Uh, one little boy dressed as Batman, one's dressed as a mummy, and a very angry house owner is yelling at them, no vaccination, no candy. No candy. And uh, uh, little Batman says to little mummy, let's go, Brandon. That says it all. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, we better leave it there. We'll, we, we probably had. Okay. Well, big thank you to all our audience today. Big thank you to the UK audience who stuck with us for so long, but also a very big thank you to the uh, overseas audience, which we know is growing greatly. I'm just going to end on the note that uh, Prince Charles talking about nature herself. Uh, at the weekend or Saturday, uh, I received a book. I'll hold it up to the camera. It's called The Prince and the Paranormal, The Psychic Bloodline of the Royal Family. And if you think that's all stuff and nonsense, research from material, factual documents and letters, and also what's been freely stated in the press, uh, but showing that the prince has lived amongst a family regime uh, where speak, speaking to the spirits of dead people uh, was perfectly normal. So I think a lot of questions to be asked of Prince Charles, is he really suitable to be lecturing the world on what the future is? And if he regards nature as being herself, David, uh, I think he's heading in some very dangerous territory. He is, and wouldn't it be uh, wouldn't it be nice to live in a world where important questions on what he actually thinks and believes, and indeed on the beliefs and world view of all of our leaders, Nicola Sturgeon, Boris Johnson, and the rest, would be uh, would be examined and and probed, and uh, and and they would be asked to defend their viewpoints, uh, so we could actually find out what sort of people governed us. That would be good. Maybe we can uh, invite some of these people to come on the UK column in uh, years to come and find out uh, what sort of uh, what sort of belief systems they really have. Oh, that's a really excellent idea. We'll try it out and see the reaction we get. And on that note, I think we should. Well, if you're sticking on the live stream, we'll have some uh, UK column extra uh, just in a couple of minutes on the main live stream. Otherwise, uh, back on Wednesday at the usual time. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Bye bye. bye.